1: No purchase necessary,
2: void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Cannonorcas, and today we're discussing how 2020 got underway for Red Bull and Renault. First up, I'll be chatting to Autosport's technical editor, Jake Boxall-Legg, about what we did and didn't see from the new Red Bull, and particularly just the glimpses that Renault revealed of its new car. And then later, we'll hear from motorsport.com's F1 editor, Jonathan Noble, and F1 Racing's executive editor, Stuart Codling, who were both at the Renault season launch in Paris earlier today. So, Jake let's start with Red Bull. What have we learned about the new RB16?
3: Well, the thing about the RB16 is it's incredibly evolutionary. You can kind of see a lot of visual design cues that were consistent with the RB15 from last year. Um, But there are some big tweaks. When we saw the launch pic, they only released one particular picture at the the very start. There were some obviously very, very tight side pods. There are a few little bits of detail changes to the arrow here and there, but nothing that you could really see from that particular angle. It was very it was almost like it was designed to kind of hide stuff. Um but then when we got to the pictures of the the car during the shakedown, um, you could really see some of those larger changes. So for example, uh, the nose cone has changed quite significantly compared to last year. It's a lot slimmer. Um it's got the sort of mounting point with the chassis bulkhead the the McLaren have and Mercedes have for example to allow them to have a thinner nose it's got a sort of larger cape section it's got Ferrari style nostrils it's got a slightly re-profiled snorkel at the front so there's a lot of changes here um Red Bull really you know trying to they've not thrown the baby out with the bathwater so much but they've made a lot of large-scale changes to the front of the car in this last year of the the current rule cycle so yeah there are a lot of Interesting parts of this car it 's also gone f- more towards the Ferrari direction of front wing it 's quite similar to what the team
0: had in uh, in pr- practice in Brazil. a lot of interesting parts of the car so the big question with Red Bull is can it avoid starting the season slowly once again? The thing is it should be able to,
3: given that they have had a year with this kind of chassis design if you like um, again it is an evolution of last year 's car. Red Bull should have the understanding within the engineering department, um, understands the basis of the car, and it just needs to be able to take all of the new bits and pieces and the redefined internals and just be able to stitch them together, make the right step, and make enough of a step over the winter as well, crucially to give Ferrari and Mercedes a bit more of a run for their money. Um, The problem with Red Bull in the last couple of seasons is that it's kind of changed the design of the car and not really understood it. So... In 2017, for example, there was a large-scale rule change. There was a lot to cope with. 2018, obviously, it was pretty similar, but and Rebel sort of did they did well. But then when it came to 2019, again another change, and Rebel wasn't on top of it until perhaps Austria when it redefined its front wing. So, I in an ideal world, because we want to see as many cars at the front challenging for victories, uh, hopefully it will. We kind of it would also be quite nice to see, you know, a Verstappen or an Albon win some of the first races and
0: perform really well because that will just start to really build the intrigue of 2020 as well. Is there anything Jake from what we learned from the the new cars launch today that suggests the team can pick up where it left off in 2019 regularly challenging for wins such as in Brazil and earlier on after the Austria update was introduced?
3: Well again there's been this really good progression it does seem to be holding things back in the launch specification but yeah I think red bull has all of the ingredients in place to be able to pick up from 2019 and continue to push red bull and continue to push mercedes and continue to push ferrari rather yes i i'm going to be optimistic
0: and say that it certainly can now you mentioned in your analysis on autosport plus that the red bull new red bull's side pods look even tighter than last year so does that put extra pressure on honda
3: well absolutely and we're now into the second year of that working relationship uh Honda has to get the cooling right and it must be able to just kick on with its level of performance. I suppose we were were lucky in a way that the Honda and Red Bull relationship kind of just sort of seemed to click really well. Um, Obviously, the sort of gestation year with Toro Rosso kind of helped out a little bit because Red Bull had access to all the data, but it just seemed to work. And although there were sort of problems here and there, I'm sure, um, with power delivery that Max Verstappen Uh, was a a little bit vocal about a couple of times last year Um, it generally seemed to work pretty well. Um, Tightening this packaging does put a lot of uh, emphasis on what Honda needs to do. Um, It needs to provide a, a cooling package that's as small as possible to kind of go in with that new ES packaging, that style. But they're wise enough now to be able to, to work with Red Bull on this rather than sort of setting out their stall in one direction and the team pushing in the other like they did in the McLaren days.
0: Now, autosports technical expert Tim Wright mentions the complex bargeboard arrangements on both the Red Bull and the Ferrari that we saw yesterday. And he did a little extra bit on the Autosport Plus feature that you wrote earlier, Jake. Is this then an area where those two teams are looking to claw back some of Mercedes' advantage in slow speed corners?
3: Absolutely. I've been speaking to Tim today about it actually um, to try, kind of work out where Red Bull have improved and what they're sort of doing, not with just regards to the bodywork, but with the suspension components as well. Um, and there do seem to be a lot of area changes focused at introducing that advantage to slow speed corners That to try and sort of like push Mercedes off their perch a little bit. Um, and we've also looked into the suspension changes as well, and Tim seems to think that um, after looking at it, They're running the sort of adjustable, uh, the sort of pivoting push rod almost, that when you introduce some degree of steering lock, it changes the ride height and it brings the car a little bit lower to the ground and gives you a little bit more of a stable platform for downforce and stuff and slow speed corners. Um, And so that level of adjustability in those slow speed corners, in trying to get around to the chicanes and things like that that's such an important part you can't just be quick in a straight line you have to be quick everywhere on the circuit and Honda seems to have the grunt to give them the straight line speed Um, just just squeezing out a little bit more of a more performance in the in the low speed yeah certainly something that they will need to
0: do if they're going to have any championship aspirations right now we come on to renault the team only offered a few glimpses of its 2020 car so were we able to learn much at all about its new design well we really weren't and it's it's really disappointing when i've
3: written a feature about this because i'm I'm, I'm a little bit annoyed actually to be honest with you Um, because you have this launch week and whether whether you launch a 2020 full 2020 car or not whether there's bits of 2019 and bits of 2020 whether it's just a livery launch you sort of it's good form to do something and whether it's just a livery launch or whether it's something like that, you know, you're you have a lot of fans excited about this kind of year. And to sort of turn up with four teaser shots that don't really show a whole lot with, a you know, a plain black livery, it's not really, you might as well just do nothing, to be honest with you. You might as well just kick the car out of the pit lane at testing and crack on because it's uh, it's just it, it's a bit of a tease, especially when you set that date as well so early. Um, there are a few things that you can learn Um, they're going for a similar sort of nose cone <laughs> transition, similar to Mercedes and McLaren and Red Bull now have um, there are a few little detail changes that you can kind of see, uh, the rear wing does look interesting from the pictures that you can see Um, but it's really hard to tell whether that's just a trick of the light whether it's just blurry, whether it is just this glimpse of something else that might not be on the proper car, we don't entirely know, so I don't really want to draw too many conclusions on what Renault will have in testing because, you know, they're one of the worst offenders as well when it comes to kicking a car out at launch that isn't representative of the real thing. So I'm, I'm wary that I I need to
0: not look too deeply into it. Now, if we look back to Renault's 2019 design, given the new car hasn't been fully revealed, uh, what does Renault need to focus on to close the gap to the front runners? The thing is with Renault, is that in the high, on the
3: high-speed circuits last season, they did phenomenally well, and there were races like Montreal, there were races like Monza, where Ricardo and Hülkenberg were running up in 4th and 5th or 6th or whatever and doing an absolutely fantastic job, and they were very much best of the rest. But the performance of the RS19, the car from last year, it's it was so variable. And although the midfield was tight, by the end of the season, McLaren had sort of forged this, position as best of the rest and they'd locked it down and they managed to from what was sort of quite a wide performance um differential in a narrow window they managed to open this window um and perform on a lot of circuits and that's something that Renault never did last season so they were good in the high speed like Ferrari was but when you get to a medium speed circuit when you get to a circuit like Barcelona or um even slower than that when you come to circuits like Hungary Renault really, really struggled, and although it seemed to be a different team, every weekend was sort of fifth best, so you had Renault in this fight with Toro Rosso and Alfa Romeo, um, and sometimes Haas, when they weren't being quite as useless, racing point as well in that in that fight, but that's something that a manufacturer team shouldn't, that's a position that a manufacturer team shouldn't be in, um, they've got all of this money and all of this capital and all of this engineering resource, and Yeah, they should be doing a lot better for their investment. And I think whether Renault needs to focus on those certain points, Renault has to make those strides because at some point this year, I'm sure there's going to be crunch meetings about the future of the Formula One team. When it comes to it, and Cyril Abibol has to make his case to keep the team running with Renault backing, they're going to need a, a, a little bit more than a few cursory points finishes
0: to you know really convince the board to continue its investment well thank you jake now it's time to hear from john and codders in paris after speaking to renault's cyrilla beatball alan prost daniel Ricciardo, and esteban ocon of course back at the team now for 2020 uh, they discussed what they learned from the event
2: yes thanks alex i'm here at the renault f1 launch here with stuart codling executive editor of f1 Racing. um we've had an interesting afternoon um, it was actually a season launch, not a car launch. Um, all we got to see today were some renderings, kind of sneak peek renderings of the car. Um, there's a reason for that, though. We spoke to Cyril Abitable later on, who explained why there was no car here. Were they late? He said, no, they're, they're more on schedule than they were last year. But he said what they didn't want to do this year was to give a fake car, because we sometimes see renderings of cars or cars with some fake wings on or something. He said, they didn't want that. We don't want a fake car, because what happens then is people like us then interpret this fake car as the real car, and then claim, oh Renault aren't very adventurous, they've been very conservative, and then that opens up a whole can of worms and causes them trouble. So, no fake car. He says, you want to see what we're like in 2020, go to Barcelona next week. But despite no car, it was interesting. We heard from um, Alain Prost um, here, a Renault ambassador, who was very open about kind of a, a subtle kind of change of mindset at the team. Maybe Stuart, you can tell us a little bit more.
1: Yeah, it was right off the bat, wasn't it? That the opening address was by Alan Pross, and he said, uh, "We we made a mistake," uh, and, and that was very surprising to me. That, that Alan Pross should stand on a stage and say, uh, "We were wrong. We set this sort of five or six year." whatever it was that they said they've remapped their expectations as the time's gone on they initially said five years later they said well actually it's more of a six year project to get back to winning world championships again obviously that time is more or less expired now so uh, it's quite wise that they've said we're now freeing ourselves from the shackles of that expectation and judging by our little sit down with Alan a little bit later on he was sort of almost suggesting that 2020 is going to be not, not the 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 interim year that we always hear about from, from teams that are struggling. But he seemed to be suggesting that actually they're targeting 2021 as a bit more of an opportunity to make a mark because hopefully with the budget cap, with the changes there will be less of an issue with the big teams actually spending all that money and, and getting a bigger return now some people have said that that actually the opposite will happen but it was interesting to see someone in his position saying that and also like you say a car launch without a car actually that's kind of giving the lie to what car launches are, because all cars that are shown to us at events like this are basically the previous year's cars with a few bits strapped on aero parts that were signed off in november so it's almost a, a waste of everyone's time to go to this effort of getting excited about it and making technical analysis also fascinating for cyril to say basically it's your fault in the media because my staff read your magazine and you slag off the work they've done and they come into work the next day going oh, well we've failed so that also was very interesting and quite amusing
2: it was interesting here from Esteban Ocon today, you know, is arriving at Renault from working at Mercedes. He knows what a championship winning team is coming and he was quite impressed, wasn't he, with the facilities he's seen at Enstone? Yeah, he said he didn't actually recognise the place. <laughs> when he first
1: walked in, he sort of didn't even recognise the foyer and he said where, where there used to be an entrance, there's now an office where people are working. So that's just two or three years ago where the, the, he was part of the, the, the Renault. The, the Lotus young driver program as it was when when he was part of it. So it just goes to show what's been done to Enstone. But as Cyril said, basically not much money was spent over on Enstone over a 10-year period, I think. Even back in Renault's glory days, 2005-2006, winning championships, they weren't investing as much as they should have done. So that facility had been neglected for a long time. So It's interesting to see what the noises are coming out of there. They also managed to contradict each other, which was quite interesting. Cyril said their simulator's not as good as it should be, but he doesn't see the point in spending money on it. Esteban said, actually, it's not that bad, and they are really important. So I wouldn't wouldn't say they're at loggerheads, but it was an interesting difference of opinion, wasn't it?
2: Are we going to see some fireworks, do you think?
1: I think it's almost inevitable, because Esteban's just that kind of guy, isn't he? He can be, I wouldn't say confrontational, but on the track he doesn't take any prisoners, and all those times when he and perez came together they they were so maybe obstreperous is the word it, it was it was sort of like irresistible force meeting immovable object for instance that lap in spa where you know, they you know, ended up being squeezed into the wall that first lap in singapore where they basically took each other out and it was kind of ridiculous and almost childish now you hope that Daniel won't do that but at the same time we've seen him fall foul of Esteban on track before and saying what was it in Hungary I don't even like his face so although Daniel's sort of all cuddly and smiley and happy-go-lucky you push the wrong buttons with him uh, he can get as nasty as anyone
2: yeah it's going to be I think it's a big year for Renault we know the ambitions for 2021 but um, we, we spent some time talking to Alain Prost as well tonight very interesting on Two fronts. First of all, how last year's performance was really unacceptable for Renault—not not worthy of the, the investment. Um, team of that size delivering like that—it's so it's clear that you know resets happened, there's, there's a rebuilding, and that the realism is going to help this year. But also, I asked him very briefly about the you know the future for Renault. Um, they're quite committed. Cyril Abiteboul was very confident that the Renault board are happy with Formula One's future, where we're going with new governance, the cost cap, new prize money. Um, but more interesting is you know where's F1's future regulations going to go regarding engines Uh, we know the British government are banning hybrid sales from 2035 F1 needs to decide what engine it's going to have from 2025 so some big issues to go out but this opened up a huge Pandora's box from Alan Prost who spoke at length about you know the dangers to the European road car industry that millions of people could be put out of work if governments don't don't respond fully What what did you make of what he was saying I was gobsmacked. There was no stopping him. Like my, my
1: opening question, he went on a bit, and I kind of thought, oh, is everyone around the table hating me for asking the first question and he's going to take up our whole slot answering it? But then he carried on. We got a good 25 minutes out of him, wasn't he? And this issue of the, the car industry, I, I have to find, I find myself agreeing with him. He's not very impressed with politicians, is he? And, and rightly so. You get politicians coming in, setting these arbitrary dates, for instance, the British government saying, 20, was it 2035, that we will get rid of not only internal combustion engines but hybrid power hybrid trains as well. The question is how they're going to do that, and that question has not been addressed because it's, they won't be in office in 2035, it'll be someone else's problem or if it doesn't happen in 2035, whoever is in office then will say, well, that was stupid, that government were a bunch of idiots. The car industry can't... It's like a super tanker. It can't be turned on a sixpence. The, The whole car industry needs to change over the next 15 years if that's going to happen. The whole infrastructure of how we fuel our cars, whether we go... If we go all electric, we have to have the charging infrastructure to make that work. If we decide that we're going to go to hydrogen fuel cell powertrains that whole that in- infrastructure has to go as well because hydrogen is volatile it's you have to take precautions transporting and storing it It's not the work of a moment, so I can see why he's annoyed by politicians just making these arbitrary lines in the sand and not actually thinking about the consequences of how it's going to work. Whether it really is going to put millions of people out of work, I don't know. Whether it's going to mean that the Chinese car industry basically knocks out the entire European car industry, which he's also alluding to uh, in in his speech, that, that, that to me sounds a little bit more plausible, because you look at any other industry that has become complacent or has had challenges, but Upon it by uh, um, legal bodies and, and governments, you do tend to find that people who are less uh, constricted from outside do come in. You look at the British motorcycle industry, which committed suicide in the 1950s and 1960s by just being crap and, and being complacent in its products. I, I think a sort of a similar situation could arise in the European car industry, not through complacency, but through overregulation or. Indecisive regulation. I think if if governments are going to put a um, uh, set these lines in the sand, they need to all agree on when when they're coming in. Because it's fine for something like the UK government to say twenty thirty five. What about the government of Liechtenstein, France, Germany, Lithuania, all those other places? When when are they going to do it? So, for car companies that are investing in Formula One. It's kind of tricky and it represents quite a difficult philosophical decision to make because for years now we've been told well should Formula 1 really reflect the, the way road car industry is going Alan Pross said he wanted the um, hybrid engines to be 4 cylinder because they were going to be more like road car engines, obviously that never happened we, we went to V6s so I, I think we are, going to, we are set for another 15 years of, of people arguing over what Formula 1 should be
2: yeah, but I find it fascinating. I think, I think we're at kind of a, a crossroads in terms of where Formula One goes. I asked Ross Braun a similar question last week when I went up to the F1 offices in London, you know, what does the impact of this 2035 mean? And he s- said, decision like this are crude. it makes no sense. You need to do a, you know, kind of dust to dust analysis of the environmental impact of a, a machine. Is, a, is an electric car any less, you know, environmentally damaging as a, you know, economical hybrid car, especially as F1 moves towards biofuels? It's it's all about detail, I think,
1: and, and this, is, this is the problem we have to overcome in, in that the modern generation of politicians do not deal in detail because they know the mechanisms they go through. They talk to focus groups, they have spin doctors. They know that the people they're addressing, the public, don't want detail. They want three-word sound bites. They want airy-fairy things, we're going this way. They want to hear only hear what they want to hear. Engineers deal in details, nitty gritty, how it's going to happen. If you say to Boris Johnson, well, how are you going to achieve the charging infrastructure necessary to... Uh, go all electric by 2035 All he'll say you you won't actually get a sensible answer out of him so this is why i think we're in for this sort of turbulent period where where we work out i I wouldn't mind going back to 12 cylinder engines i'm sure a lot of fans would as well i'm not sure how big a sell that would be to the kind of to the wider car industry the sort of people who need to invest in in formula one because the 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 top tier of the sport has to be the pinnacle of technology, and if it decides it's going to go backwards and kind of almost to the stone age, it's not going to attract the necessary investment. It's going to cease to be the pinnacle. Is it then going to put bums on seats?
2: Back to the more short-term future. Renault's
1: target, fourth place in the Constructors' Championship. They've talked about running into a plateau of aero de- development and having to change car concept last year. Now, when that happens, you've basically got to learn the whole car again, so... My concern with them is that they're going to spend quite a lot of time learning how the car works, even though this car is supposedly evolutionary. If, if they've changed car concept, they, they have to learn how it works. It's a whole new learning experience. That's why this time last year, when Mercedes pitched up at testing with one type of front wing, Ferrari had another, there were conversations within Mercedes, are we doing the right thing? And they eventually boiled down to, well, we can change now, but that means we're just going to lose for six months and we might not necessarily get a result at the end of it. We'll have to spend all this time learning the new concept. So they decided to plough on with it. So this has been a rather long-winded way of saying that Mercedes, sorry, that Renault is going to be at a disadvantage compared with other teams that have got continuity from last year and who've learned how to make that front wing work and who've, who have mastered the, the turbulent wake from it that was so hard for, for everyone to get to, to make work. I just sort of think they're they're going to be behind the teams that have actually got a little bit more continuity, even in their design and technical operation, because Renault, one of these teams that has undergone a bit of turbulence and yet another restructure over the winter, it's going to take time for that to bed in. And with that,
2: I think we've got a Eurostar to catch. Yeah, let's get that train.
0: Uh, well, thank you to John and Codders. I do hope they made that Eurostar. Now, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the Autosport Podcast, where we'll be discussing McLaren's 2020 car. But in the meantime, do check out all our stories on autosport.com and motorsport.com, as well as Jake's full uh, technical analysis articles that are available now on Autosport+. And finally, thanks to our producer Martin Lee for editing this episode, and thank you to you for listening. Music is 6 AM by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com/trilo music. Wendy's nose cold and soggy fries are the worst so soggy that's why we're serving up hot and crispy fries all day, every day and all night until close with natural cut potatoes sea salted to perfection show me that potato skin Wendy's hot and crispy aren't like other fries we're your dream fry choose wisely Choose Wendy's hot and crispy fries.
2: Guaranteed to be hot and crispy. If yours aren't, bring them back and we'll replace them.
3: Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.